Great, I might need a glass of water. Could somebody get, thank you, Becky. I should have known Becky would do it. Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. A few years ago when I graduated from seminary, one of my favorite graduation gifts came from Aunt Verna and Uncle Luke. It was not your typical graduation present. At least I didn't think it was your typical seminary graduation present. And this is it. It was a luggage tag. A tag to go on my luggage, which on the back gave me opportunity to write my name and address and information in case my luggage should get lost. But what I liked most about it (coughs) was the inscription on the front. It has a picture of Christ with the crown of thorns, and it says, wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Thank you, Becky. Now, many of you know that famous quote from St. Francis of Assisi, wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, I didn't necessarily think when I was graduating from seminary that I was going to become an itinerant preacher using her luggage all the time and so that this would be appropriate, but I thought about it. How appropriate for a seminary graduate to be given a luggage tag. And so right away, I put it on my favorite piece of luggage, the one that I use most often, and I have used it all the time since. And I thought, not only is it an appropriate gift for a seminary student, but for any Christian to have something like that as a reminder. And on my most recent trip to Indiana, which I flew, I was waiting in line to check in. And I had my bag, my suitcase there, with my luggage tag on it. And now I confess. I looked down and I saw my luggage tag staring up at me. And I saw the picture of Jesus. And I saw the phrase, wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And I flipped it over. I wasn't in the mood today. And most of all, I didn't want somebody to see this and to get the wrong idea. To see this and then watch me carefully. To see if I was indeed preaching the gospel, if only with my deeds. I didn't like the pressure that this luggage tag had for me. I had no reason to think that I wasn't behaving as a Christian. But I realized that it's a tendency of mine on airplanes because airplanes are not a good space for me. It's not that I'm afraid of flying. In fact, I don't mind flying at all. But maybe of you have heard this before, but when I get on an airplane, I face one of my biggest conundrums of life, the dreaded seatmate. Beside whom will I be seated? And then the big question, are they a talker? Now, all of you know I like to talk. 
except on airplanes. I would rather sit there quietly and not even acknowledge beyond, beyond the first cordial hello with my seatmate. And I've realized that I have become this way on airplanes the older I've gotten. And I thought it had to do with age, but recently I realized it had more to do with my life. <clears throat> you see, whenever you sit down beside a talker on the airplane, inevitably within the first few minutes, one of the first questions he or she will ask you is, what do you do for a living? <clears throat> and so I wait with trepidation to see who my seatmate will be and to hope that it's not a talker. Because if they are, then the question comes, and comes my conundrum. Do I tell them my occupation or not? You see, if I tell them what I do for a living, it is almost predictable to a T. Their response is twofold. One is shock and surprise. They're somewhat speechless for a moment. And I'm not sure if it has to do with a combination of my age or my sex or my attire. I don't know. But they're often surprised and often they ask me to repeat it. And then they begin to ask me questions. And the questions begin. Questions they have about faith. Or if they don't have questions, then it's a time of confession. And I will tell you, I am surprised at what I have heard on an airplane. <laughs> Basically, they make me their pastor for the next two or three hours. Now, granted, there was one man who didn't quite follow the stereotypical response pattern that I have found. His response was, well, if pastors looked like you when I was in church, I never would have left. And there I was, stuck beside him for the next three hours. So I have to decide when I get on the airplane whether I'm going to tell the truth or whether my answer will deviate a bit and I will respond with the evasive, oh, I work for a nonprofit agency. <laughs> but preaching the gospel is my occupation. It is what I believe I am called to do. It is what you have called me to do. And so Paul's words that Eric read to us in the book of Corinthians are actually somewhat difficult to read when I think about my most recent experience in the airport and my shame of my luggage tag. As Paul proposes also in the book of Romans, I have to ask, am I ashamed of the gospel? Am I not fulfilling my Christian duty to preach it at all times, at all places? Am I disappointing God by being fearful that my seatmate may ask me what I do for a living? Jesus didn't seem to have any problem with preaching. The Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus preaching intensely from the very beginning. One of the things about Mark is he doesn't mess around. He gets right to the point. Everything is immediately for Mark. If you notice that when you read the gospel, immediately, immediately, immediately. The guy is fast-paced, ready to go. He doesn't mess around with Jesus' birth and all that stuff. He gets right to John the Baptist. And we plug right in to John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, 
And then he comes and immediately begins. Verse 14 of chapter 1, Jesus is already into his ministry. He was proclaiming the good news of God. And then he was calling his first four disciples, Andrew and Simon and James and John, calling them to leave their boats, to leave their father and come follow him. And then he began his cleansing of the spirits. He began healing. And he showed up at the synagogue one day on the Sabbath and took over the microphone. And Okay, well, there wasn't a microphone. But he took over the, the pulpit and he started preaching and telling the good news there. It was a new teaching, one with authority, the people exclaimed. Whew. And after an exhausting day, I'm sure, of preaching and teaching in the synagogue, he was invited home with Simon, his disciple, who was later to be called Peter. And he went home to enjoy prob probably one of the biggest meals of the week, a Sabbath dinner. And when they got there, he was told that Simon's mother-in-law was, in fact, very ill, sick in bed with a high fever. And would he come immediately? And so he did. He went and he touched her hand and held her hand, and she was healed instantly, so much so that she was able to get up and finish preparing the meal. And then the word spread quickly, and that evening after the meal, people, crowds of people just came to his home, and they were asking him for healing, for the demons that were in them to be released, for whatever their needs were. They were coming. They were bringing to the door. And so Jesus went out to them. And he healed them. And after this day, I'm sure he crashed into bed and slept very soundly until it was time to get up early the next morning. You see, he knew that the crowds were coming. So Jesus was a smart guy. The only time he's going to get alone time was if he got up very early before everybody else, before the sunrise, and would sneak away to a private spot to be alone, to pray. But those disciples, they weren't going to give him much time. Once they realized what he had done, they had went looking for him. And they found him. And they're like, Jesus, what are you doing out here? Come on. People are looking for you. People want you to come heal them. We need you. We need you. Let's go back to the town. And what did Jesus say? I find this so interesting. Here was this man who could heal, who could bring such good news to the people there who were clamoring for him, who wanted him. And he said, nope, time to go on to the next town. Time to go on and proclaim the gospel to the next town, because that is what I have come to do. Well, I wonder how all those people that were waiting at Simon's house felt when Jesus didn't come back, didn't offer them the healing that the people the night before had received. But Jesus declared, I can't do that. Jesus' mission, he claimed, was to spread the gospel. And he reminded the disciples, it is that for you too, as followers of me. He had called them just verses before to be fishers of people. He asked them to leave their families, to leave their jobs, to leave their livelihoods, to, to leave their lives as they knew it, to follow him. And follow them they did. They followed him to the synagogue earlier that day, to the healings, to the towns, to the weddings, to the great 
crowds of preaching and they were watching and they were observing and they were learning and they were questioning and they were hoping, hoping to be able to imitate this great man, this great teacher. But they were always following. Perhaps it was because of the disciples that Jesus chose not to heal those waiting at Simon's house that early morning for healing, but rather to leave to preach to others. Jesus reminds us later on that the poor will always be with us, and those who need healing will always be with us. But he made it very clear that he had come to preach, to proclaim the message And to not only preach to those in new cities, but also so that his disciples would hear him. Even though they had heard him before and will hear them again, he wanted to make sure that his disciples heard the message. Through this story, Jesus was doing exactly what he had asked the disciples to do. To be a leader so that they could follow, so that they could learn. Jesus had asked the disciples to follow him, and now Jesus was showing them how to be followers. They were being shown that fishing for people involves more than the recruitment that Jesus did of them. It includes teaching and healing and driving out demons. And Jesus is demonstrating to them here what he will ask and expect of his disciples to do later. But the story doesn't show us only how Jesus emphasizes preaching and following. It shows us, all of us, exactly what Jesus expects of us when we are called to be disciples. In his commentary on Mark, Timothy Gettert observes that in this text of Mark, we see many ways that Jesus ministered. As I said, he was preaching, he was healing, he was praying, he was casting out demons, all within a few short phrases. And all of these are valid ministries. All help to promote God's reign on earth. But it's only verse 38 that seems to focus on proclamation. It's not that we should ignore the other ministries that Jesus demonstrated for us. It just so happens that verse 38 is what Jesus felt called to do. It's not that proclamation is not primary for all of us, but because Jesus' proclamation wasn't explaining both the need for other ministries and their significance. So Simon, Peter, and the other disciples left everything they had to follow this man. We see that in verses 18 and 20, and then later on in chapter 10, verse 28, when Peter exclaims, almost in exasperation to Jesus, but we left everything for you. Jesus did, in fact, call Andrew and Simon to leave their nets. He called James and John to leave their father, calling them to leave their occupations, their livelihoods, their families. Such sacrifice, never to see them again. But this passage tells us something more. It's one of those things that you read between the lines. It's not quite so blatant. And it takes place 
just about a week, this, this healing of Peter's mother-in-law takes place just about a week after Jesus had invited him to follow him. Remember, he had invited him to follow him, to leave his family, to leave his home, to leave his livelihood. Do you find it surprising that a week later, they're back at Simon's home? I thought he was supposed to leave them all behind. In Mark 1.17, we find that Simon had supposedly left everything, and yet not a week passes, and we find him back at his home celebrating the Sabbath with his family, enjoying his mother-in-law's Sabbath dinner. And the boats that all of these men had supposedly left behind, think about how many times they reappear in the Gospels that we find the disciples with their boats fishing their nets again and again. Interestingly enough, we have always thought that Jesus told his disciples that they had to leave everything to follow him. But in fact, it's one of those things that we were taught. But if you look at the text, look at the verses in which Jesus actually calls these four disciples, he doesn't say you have to leave everything. He says, come, follow me. And it was Peter, Peter in chapter 10, verse 28, that declared We had left everything to follow you, Jesus. Well, we do need to leave a lot. And in many ways, we need to leave everything to follow Jesus. But leaving everything to follow Jesus is about priorities more than it is about actually leaving people or leaving things. It's a matter of priorities Jesus called his disciples to follow him, to reevaluate and to reestablish their priorities, to leave their nets. And perhaps to them, that felt like everything. That was their livelihood. That was their way of living. But the things that Jesus calls us to leave are not necessarily abandoned. We make God's kingdom work a priority over them. And only abandon them if God requires it. Because then we will be much more ready and able to go. It is about prioritizing that the kingdom of God matters first in our lives. Jesus himself demonstrated this. It wasn't that morning, early morning, when he was out praying and the disciples came to find him. I suspect it wasn't that he didn't care about the people who were looking for him, who were wanting more healing. But his priority that day was to go to another town, to preach the message. And for Jesus, on that day, the message was the priority. Following Christ is about a readiness to drop everything that stands in the way of faithfully being a disciple. Sometimes that means literally giving it all away. Sometimes it means leaving it all behind, and sometimes it does not. Timothy Gettert says, to leave everything is to release control of things. Jesus becomes the Lord of our relationships and our possessions. They no longer keep us from responding as radically to Jesus as he calls us to do. And so the call to discipleship is a call to break all the ties that keep us from following Jesus. 
whatever they may be. You'll notice that James and John's call was different than Andrew and Simon's in the first verses in Mark. And I had to wonder, for James and John, it was a call to leave their father. I wonder if Jesus knew that for James and John, it was the attachment to the father, it was the attachment to the family that was going to be toughest to give up. But for Simon and Andrew, it was to leave their nets. It was to leave their income. It was to leave their boats and follow. Calling them for the same thing, but asking them to leave different things, knowing perhaps where their priorities would be challenged would be struggled. What is keeping you from following Jesus more closely? Are you feeling too tied to your job, to your finances? It's hard not to be obsessed with them in today's economy. Or maybe you're tied too closely to your hobbies, to your golf game, to your scrapbooking. Are you more obsessed about reading the sports section each morning than reading the scriptures? Can you not follow Jesus fully because you feel like you have to spend so much time working to get ahead so that you can give your family the life that you want them to lead and you think that you deserve that you've made that a priority over Jesus? Or are you spending too much time giving your time away to outside community projects that you actually have begun to ignore your own important family interactions? Interactions that perhaps God has prioritized for you. These are tough decisions, and they're not something that usually can come to us quickly, but something that we evaluate as we look at our week at our life, at our time, and their tough thoughts. But Jesus calls us to prioritize, to follow him first, to not necessarily leave our jobs, our families, our enjoyment, our homes, and become itinerant preachers like Paul. After all, if we read the Corinthians text again, we realize that Paul isn't saying all of us should do that. It's all first person. Paul is saying, I have been chosen to do this. I am doing this. But he's modeling to us the way to make priorities in his life. Following Christ is about a readiness to drop everything that stands in the way of faithful discipleship. And it's a call to discern exactly what God is asking for each of us to do in our lives. Thomas Merton said, I'll never pray like Martin Luther. Those of us in our prayer class know that Martin Luther prayed at a minimum of two hours a day. I'll never have the spirit of Mother Teresa, Thomas Merton said. But we are not called to duplicate someone else on earth. But we are to realize our authentic selves. Maybe I don't have to be the preacher of the gospel that Paul calls for in Corinthians. But maybe I do need to put my luggage tag back on my suitcase and boldly display it. And then act the part. That's something I can do. And maybe my priorities on the airplane shouldn't be to get to my list of reading or writing, or reflecting, or whatever it is that I have lined up to do in the next two and a half hours. 
But maybe my priority should be to my seatmate. And those can be the backup plans in case I happen to have a seat by myself or a quiet seatmate. So my priority will be to listen to my seatmate, to talk if that's what he or she wishes. And after all, God has called me to be a pastor. And in doing that work, wherever I am, I am following Christ. Thomas Merton made a distinction between the false self that we project to the world and the true self that God knows. Merton says, for me to be a saint means for me to be myself. May we listen to the call to follow Jesus and to be disciples. And in that following, may we make Jesus the top priority in our lives. Amen.